Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, simultaneously and not in sequence. Nick Cernick and Alex Williams, co-authors of Inventing the Future, Post-Capitalism and a World Without Work. The book was first published by Verso in 2015 and then reissued in an updated, expanded edition last October. The broad topic of the book is contained in its title. It is a critique of the timidity of so much left politics today and an argument for a future in which machines do more of our work and humans do less. An important part of it is its advocacy of a universal basic income, UBI, an idea with a long history that has recently gained adherence and critics across the political spectrum. It refers to the provision by the state of a basic monetary grant to all citizens, which runs into the problems of citizenship, as we'll hear later, regardless of their work status. We'll have more on the UBI in future shows. Now Nick Cernick, he's the one with a Canadian accent, and Alex Williams with the English accent. The book opens with a critique of folk politics, which I, I found very invigorating, although you seem to uh, step back a bit from it in your, your afterward. What is folk politics, and uh, why should we uh, be concerned about it? Uh, I think another name for folk politics might have been uh, a politics of immediacy. And partly our argument was against the sort of turn towards a lot of localized ideas, local alternatives, and the idea that um, these things are sufficient on their own. Uh, the same sort of like tactics that were used in Occupy Wall Street, where they just simply don't scale up beyond, you know, maybe a few hundred people. Uh, and these sorts of things that become really problematic when you want a politics that actually can grapple with global complexities. Uh, it seemed to us that to become a sort of common sense idea, these sort of tactics and these ideas and strategies, uh, and they needed to be sort of critiqued because in part they were at the heart of why something like Occupy Wall Street, despite mobilizing millions of people, still failed in the end uh, to make any sort of significant social transformation. There's also a reticence about goals. Uh, how does that fit in with the organizational um, issues? I mean, I think the, the issue about goals, which was, as we recall, a particularly important one uh, for Occupy Wall Street, but also for other movements around the same time. So there was a, a student movement in the UK around the same time, which was very much kind of ideologically and organizationally structured in a similar way. So it was based on consensus decision making and a deliberate refusal of leaders and even a kind of refusal of kind of goals, although that did have a bit more of a um, an obvious protest dimension to it. What, what we kind of see is that, that there's a kind of refusal of goals, which is partly because of the fact that the way these organizations are kind of internally structured meant that they wanted to enable consensus decision making to occur, which always involved pushing back as much as possible a definitive program, even at the level of kind of large scale future goals. As soon as you say that you want something, then that means that certain groups will be annoyed by that. Certain groups won't want to take part anymore. There was a privileging of the kind of the organizational form over its political efficacy. Did this all emerge from a, a reluctance to uh, make demands that would prove to be divisive, that would threaten the group's unity? Or is there something else at work, an unwillingness to think grandly or to speak of where one wants to go because it would exclude other destinations. How do you link this, this combination of, of organizational diffusion with, with a reticence about goals? The two always occur together. You know, it's partly that there has been a lack of large-scale leftist thinking, or there has been. I think this is improving now. But I think that in the kind of era around, around you know, and immediately in the wake of the financial crisis, what it really exposed was the paucity of detailed leftist political thinking that wasn't massively academic in its focus. And this just just the sheer um, absence of viable options beyond windy declarations around some kind of metaphysical communism, or sort of very milquetoast Keynesian social democratic options. The cupboard was a bit threadbare. So I think the fact that people really hadn't really thought what they want, they maybe they know what they didn't want, um, but defining down exactly what they did want, I think that, you know, there, there was definitely an absence there. And this absence was there for historical reasons. It's funny, we're recording this on the anniversary of uh, Joseph Stalin's uh, assumption of the role of gener general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Uh, but there is that, uh, that, that specter of Stalin always hanging over um, these conversations about both organization and goals that uh, people think you know, you're uh, moving in a Leninist direction or a Stalinist direction if you start talking about some kind of enduring organization, but you're also uh, putting us at risk of gulags if we start talking about major ambitious transformations. Uh, 
so the way of of avoiding these problems seems to be uh, to be modest in both organization and uh, ambition. Yeah, and I think partly it leads to a really um, sort of defensive and and small scale, uh, small c conservative idea uh, about what politics is all about. Uh, it becomes a matter of just you know defending people and their situations as they exist now, without any sense that we could actually transform you know the, the conditions which are leading to these uh, these sorts of outcomes. It's partly a matter of the defeat of the left. Uh, I mean, the the left has been knocked back for decades now, uh, and as a result, you know, the idea of dreaming big has been lost. I think also in terms of the the kind of the issue of Stalinism. We need to think about the broader kind of historical sequence here. And you can see organizations like Occupy Wall Street and other immediatist politics as very much being the result of a particular kind of dialectic. So this begins with the the new left in the 1960s, 1970s, and associated feminist black civil rights movements who make, you know, accurate, for the most part, criticisms of some of the existing um, you know, leftist organisations that they, you know, they they tended towards unchecked authority, which was was often abusive. I mean, these are criticisms that we you know, largely share. If you take that kind of vector and you 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 continue it too far, you end up with this totally acephalous, amorphous form of politics, which is, you know, even to the extent of where you have people saying, "Well, I can't actually, I can't speak for anybody else in this movement." There's a degree of individualism. Which at times I think with a you know digitally mediated movements can be good because it means it's there's very low cost of entry. People they can kind of customize the kind of the messaging of the organisation, but at the same time it, it, the rejection of any long term goals or any kind of persistent institutions is problematic. Persistent institutions need not be equivalent to Stalinism. That seems to be an extremely hyperbolic argument to suggest that. What's necessary is to come to terms with the the, the accurate aspects of the new left critique of the older left organizations, but not basically junk or persistent institutions or um, goals, because you end up with a, uh, a kind of politics which is continually having to reinvent the wheel, continually having to learn the same lessons, because it has, you know, it's, it's lacked any, any, any you know, institutional memory. And this is paralyzing, I think. It's funny how uh, some of this thinking reproduces a Hayekian critique of, of socialism in that uh, you know, Hayek's critique of planning uh, is that uh, we, we need the decentralized information provided by the market. Uh, the central authorities can't know what uh, the, uh, the wisdom of crowds can provide. There is this way in which this kind of radical politics reproduces neoliberalism, although you know it, it, it purports to be critical of it, but it uh, it also seems to reproduce a lot of its features. It does have a kind of a, a common um, root, maybe. So maybe it's not inherent. I don't think it's inherently neoliberal, but I think there is there is a common germ there, which is very much in this kind of a uh, sort of understanding of, of spontaneous intelligence and of, of complex systems as, as being inherently more sophisticated than. Uh, um, any kind of planning or kind of intentional directedness. I, I think this is actually probably misreading the way that complexity works, actually, and that clearly I think, uh, you know, you can apply very much the same kinds of lessons as, as you might to the critique of Hayek as, as you might to these kinds of organisations, which is that, you know, looked at uh, realistically, just as markets always require states and, um, you know, key corporate actors to kind of make them, and the same is true with politics. It seems to me that this false opposition between either horizontalism or Stalinism, um, there's, there's no third option, is a way of you know, avoiding thinking about the organizational issue. What, what kinds of ideas do you have about uh, ways to approach you know, political organization that goes beyond the immediate and the local? Yeah, I think we've seen some experiments in the real world recently. Um, I mean, Podemos is probably the most obvious case, but we also have Venezuela, uh, and I think Momentum and Corbyn in the UK are also doing quite interesting things, um, at least potentially in terms of sort of different organizational forms. I think part of the idea, though, that we try to argue for in the book is to say, well, this idea that like one organizational form is going to solve all our problems is a mistake in itself. Uh, and actually, we need to be thinking about more like an organizational ecology where, you know, not everybody is doing the same thing. Not everybody is trying to organize in the same way. Not everybody has the same sort of temporalities or same sort of spatial scales. And then we can start to think about how all these things fit together uh, in a much more interesting way than just saying, like, that's horizontalism, that's, you know, Stalinism, uh, and that there's nothing interesting in between. 
for an American, it's funny to see some of these ideas spread around the world. Some of this stuff seems very American in that uh, it's deeply individualistic and oriented towards self-expression rather than any, any notion of representation or you know ambitious transformations. It seems like we've uh, this is a noxious export we've delivered to the rest of the world. Well, I, I think there's a certain important point to be made, though, that organizational forms find their conditions at a particular historical moment. And so the organizational form of horizontalism emerged from, you know, environmentalism and some other, you know, new left movements. And at that sort of point in time, it did make a lot of sense. And it was responding to the particular conditions of that time. And then it just gets exported as this, you know, universal sort of thing that has to be applied everywhere. And then it becomes really problematic. Same thing with, you know, the Leninist model or a Stalinist model or anything mm-hmm. else. Uh, we, so we really need to recreate and like pay attention to our own uh, historical moment. That was the voice of Nick Cernick. I'm speaking with him and Alex Williams, the co-authors of Inventing the Future, Post-Capitalism in a World Without Work from Verso. Okay, let's talk some about what uh, kinds of ambitions you have. You um, really are looking for major transformations of the way we organize our, our material lives. Full automation, universal basic income, as it says on the cover. Lay out what your, your, your uh, utopian um, ambitions you, you, you have for us. So I think the the overall goal is essentially to end our dependency on wage labor, uh, to end the coercive aspect of having to find a job uh, in order to be able to survive under capitalism. So all of our other demands sort of follow upon that. How do we sort of maintain living standards and still have uh, not be dependent on wage labor anymore? So something like a universal basic income obviously responds to that. Uh, and that it provides people with an income outside of any sort of work that they actually do. Uh, you don't have to go and find a job. So there's a lot of arguments for UBI, but at, at least for me, that's the most important one, is that it separates us from the dependency on wage labor. Full automation, same sort of thing is that, well, if we want to you know, maintain living standards and be able to have all the nice things that we can afford and we don't want to revert back to uh, you know, de-develop, well, actually, we need you know, some robots to be able to produce certain amount of output. Uh, so full automation sort of responds to that to, to liberate people and give them more free time as we let robots do more work. The idea of a UBI has gotten surprisingly fashionable uh, outside the left. I mean, you hear Silicon Valley people talking about it. Uh, what, what do you attribute this uh, popularity of the notion to? I mean, a lot of the popularity right now, I think, is, is, has, which really has grown quite staggeringly in the last kind of three years. So when we were discussing this, when we were writing the book, this seemed like an idea that had some, you know, strong historical roots, but still seemed fairly radical. Whereas today, there are you know, mainstream discussions in the media about this quite regularly. I think it's partly to do with the automation question, often written up as robots about to steal your job. Um, the Financial Times had a whole week on this last year, robots stealing your job. I think this is one of the things which is really pushing this to the fore. I think it's important to note, though, that, that not all UBIs are going to be emancipatory. And in fact, you know, the, the fact that so many people from Silicon Valley um, are showing an interest in it demonstrates the fact that you really need to dig a little bit below just the term UBI before thinking that this could have any kind of positive leftist impacts. So I think the kind of the debate has kind of moved on from being one about trying to get this issue on the agenda towards being one which is much more... Um, hopefully focused on what does it entail, practically speaking? You know, what's its relationship to existing welfare states? How is it going to be funded? All of these kind of things. What kind of level is it going to be set at? Because I think that we should be wary of, um, you know, neoliberals bearing UBI. Yes. Well, you got to watch that hegemony stuff. Arguments for UBI, whether it's yours or uh, Silicon Valley types, usually, as you say, uh, come out of the uh, the notion that the robots are stealing our jobs. There really is no evidence that they are yet. I mean, we've seen a lot of forecasts that they will sometime in the near future or 10 years out or whenever this is about to arrive. But that's all very reminiscent of uh, things we've heard for a century, uh, that uh, machines are stealing our jobs, and they're not. Today, in the United States, productivity growth is approaching zero. Most other uh, rich countries have uh, very weak productivity growth. Job growth in the United States now is higher than one would expect given GDP growth rates. So we're not really seeing the robots moving in and expropriating our employment just yet. How crucial is that notion to uh, your vision for the future? 
I think it's um, an easy way into something like UBI and a reduced working week. I don't think that there's sort of a, a risk of mask unemployment. Um, I do think, though, what we've seen with automation, particularly in manufacturing, is that a, a group of people are pushed out of one sector and pushed into another sector. Uh, so economists are talking about you know, job polarization. Uh, the idea that a lot of middle class, middle income, middle skilled jobs have been disappearing over the past 40 years, uh, and they've been replaced with a few high skill, high wage jobs, but also a whole large chunk of low skill, low wage jobs. Uh, and so we sort of see the labor market, people being pushed out to the edges. Now, I think what's sort of likely to happen is that um, that sort of process is going to continue and that a lot of those sort of middle class jobs are going to continue to sort of disappear um, I, I think the, the sort of conditions for automation today are different, though, from the past as well. Uh, the biggest one is simply, well, economic growth. Uh, economic growth is the basis of job growth. And right now we have a period of secular stagnation or whatever you want to call it. Uh, global growth has been quite slow, uh, one of the slowest recoveries on record. So there's a risk of not getting enough job growth through that. Uh, and America is, you know, the top example uh, everybody else is, is sort of uh, drifting behind. The other sort of aspect as well, that if we do look at history, say the Industrial Revolution period, you have, say, from the 1870s to about the early 1900s, a period where there's a lot of automation going on. Uh, there's a lot of productivity increases, but wages are stagnant. People are living in mass poverty. People are living in slums. So I think even if we look at history, there's not necessarily a lot of case for optimism that things are going to be okay in the short term, at least. What is your um, scope of organization for uh, EUBIs? It's, will we still have nation states and uh, the UBI would be arranged within the national borders? Or uh, do you have something more uh, transformational in mind? Well, I think it's important to note that the kind of the program that we set out, I mean, some people kind of think it's utopian um, and it has certainly has utopian dimensions. But there's an association with utopia that it's kind of a finished state, that it's it's a static, perfect final destination. And we're very much keen to to note that it's the kind of stuff we're talking about isn't. It's It's basically designed to create a platform from which further leftist gains could be made. So from that perspective, we focus in the book largely on the level of the nation state, because that's kind of where we are right now. Um, and realistically, the kind of the the way that this would, would, would at least first emerge would have to be, I think, via individual nation states. Now, this obviously has some problematic dimensions in itself, particularly when you think about, uh, uh, you know, the, the kind of global population and the fact that, you know, ideally a UBI would be literally universal on a global level. Um, but I think at least initially, uh, the way we kind of envisage it would be that you would need to have some key leading states within the global economy adopt this kind of program and demonstrate that it could be successful. Um, and then this could be exported more generally and taken up more generally. But I think initially you do unfortunately have to work within the, the kind of the bounds of the nation state. That said, however, an idea like universal basic income already starts to put questions on the kind of limited parameters of the nation state. And that's kind of intentional, I think. Obviously, there are a lot of tensions, political tensions around today over uh, immigrants, uh, migrants, and, uh, and and welfare benefits. I would think a UBI would only intensify that. So how, how do you address uh, the kind of uh, xenophobias that we see spreading around the world now uh, in the context of UBI? Well, I think partly a UBI gets rid of some of the stigma associated with um, people receiving benefits. So I think that's one sort of way in which it sort of undermines the existing structure of exclusions. But I think, you know, the question about how does, not just UBI, I think it's actually a larger point about the welfare state in general. How does the welfare state manage something like open borders? Is it compatible with open borders? Uh, is, I think, a really sort of big question that hasn't necessarily been answered yet. Yeah, and that, I, I mentioned Hayek uh, in a bad way before, but he did have a pretty sharp critique of uh, the importance of national borders uh, in socialism and social democracy. Uh, and you know, here he is, you know, the the the, uh, the voice of capitalist internationalism, uh, advocating for you know, the the weakening of borders uh, from from a, a pure market point of view. Can this be done within a world of uh, of, of erasing borders, or will 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 this sort of thing only reinforce borders? And I think at the moment, you know, we're facing a almost global hegemonic realignment, which is which is going on. And it's um, not one that necessarily immediately uh, favors the left, uh, it, you know, in its in its social, socialist, social democratic or, or communist forms. 
Um, and this polarization is very much one between, you know, into these two poles, one of which is, you know, a reactionary um, ethno-nationalism, economic nationalism. And the other is, is you know, Hayek's viewpoint that you just mentioned, a kind of um, cosmopolitan uh, globalism brokered through the market, the global market. Neither of these really gives a space to uh, the left to, you know, necessarily makes it make make its points. And I think attempts to align with either of those would be deeply problematic. So I think in order to actually kind of surmount this problem, it it requires a politics that I think does a bit more than simply kind of propose a post-work world. It, it explicitly requires a politics that's going to be able to channel some of uh, the the kind of the interests of ordinary people to a coordinate which is not one of these two towards a kind of a, you know an actual leftism and i think um outside of that it would be very hard to kind of um promote this but this is a kind of a very live issue especially where um both of us live in in the uk kind of following brexit where you know you can see that this kind of the space for a genuine leftism is being squeezed and there are kind of people on the left who are kind of advocating well maybe we need to we're going to be a socialism, but an ethno-nationalist socialism that starts blaming immigrants for stealing jobs, even though we presumably know that that kind of statistically isn't really that true. Or others who are kind of saying, well, we need to ally with liberal neoliberals. Um, so we, I think it's very important to, to, to kind of note that, yeah, I mean, we abs- in order to make this happen, we absolutely would need a wide scale hegemonic project to posit a genuine leftist alternative to both of these. That was the first part of my interview with Nick Cernick and Alex Williams, co-authors of Inventing the Future, Post-Capitalism, and a World Without Work, from Verso. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of the gang of fours we live as we dream alone. We'll hear more of that at the end of the show. And now on to part two of my interview with Nick Cernick and Alex Williams, co-authors of Inventing the Future, Post-Capitalism and a World Without Work, first published by Verso in 2015 and reissued in an updated expanded edition last October. About 12 minutes in, Alex Williams will mention the Mont Pelerin Society. That society was called into existence by Friedrich Hayek in 1947 when he invited a few dozen scholars, mostly economists but also some historians and others, to a small town in Switzerland to plot a long-term fight against what he perceived as a rising threat from a Marxist and Keynesian left and to restore the ideals and practices of the 19th century laissez-faire liberalism. Hayek and his colleagues were quite canny. They knew there was nothing natural about capitalism and were prepared to fight a great political battle to make their dream a reality. They had some success and must be conceded. Now back to Nick Cernick and Alex Williams. Whenever you talk about post-work world, I, well, I have the impulse myself, uh, but I'm sure uh, many others do as well. Uh, of, like, who's going to make all this stuff? What will uh, universal basic income buy if there are not people around to make goods and services? How do you solve this problem of work in a world where uh, universal basic income may make you just want to sit around and watch TV? I mean, I think we have sort of cases where we can look at groups of people who um, don't have to work, retired people, uh, and they seem to do just fine in terms of finding things to do and, you know, sort of continuing on with their lives, usually in a much more pleasant fashion than their their work lives were. Uh, You also have one of my favorite cases is like just the royal family uh, in the UK. (laughs) Doesn't have to work, doesn't have a job, uh, but manages to do just fine. 
uh, without having any job that they have to do. Their job is inspiring all of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think there are real serious and big questions about what would people do in a sort of post-work world. And I don't necessarily think we have the answers to that yet. I think the biggest one is maybe less about what would people consume in terms of material goods, uh, but how would people find meaning in a sort of post-work world? Uh, I think a lot of people... No, but I'm, I'm asking, like, how will they know that the lights will go on if you, you know, will there be electricity uh, if there's nobody to work in the power plant or uh, provide the energy uh, or, uh, you know, b- work on the on the transmission lines? I mean, do you think this is all going to be automated or will people still have things that resemble jobs now, even though uh, they might uh, change in some of their aspects? I, I think it would be significantly reduced effectively. I think, you know, Keynes's idea of the 15-hour work week or something like that would be um, the sort of plausible goal that you would be aiming at. So still work to be done. It can't be fully automated, but we're working much less. We're not, you know, we have, say, four or five-day weekend rather than a, a two-day weekend. That sounds delightful. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's striking you know, reading your book now that uh, um, so much of the left is um, that has been I've taken a very anti-technological turn. There's, uh, you know, all these critiques of, of alienation uh, through technology, uh, and um, there, there's a great deal of, um, you know, almost backward-looking quality to a lot of, of uh, what uh, passes for a left these days. Uh, you guys reject that nostalgia uh, and uh, are really uh, embrace technology and, and uh, in a very ambitious way. Technology really is at the core of your, your your vision of a post-work world, right? I mean, in part. I mean, I think the, the uh, because of the kind of thing that you mentioned, Doug, that you know, a lot of the left has become almost intrinsically kind of anti-technological. You know, from its more kind of theoretical wings to its more you know kind of activist wings, um, viewing all technology as as inherently always already capitalistic and, and and kind of being capable of no other kind of effects. Um, I think that leaves people who say actually technology can be useful, can, can end up positioning them as looking as if they're kind of um, techno-determinist or completely techno-optimistic. We're not either of those things. I mean, I think the, the key thing is kind of technology plus politics. So technology kind of changes um, the nature of uh, the political, and economic and social opportunities. And it's something that politics can organize around and, and, and can kind of intervene in. But I don't think it's enough to say that kind of, you know, to take the kind of ultra kind of techno-economic deterministic kind of viewpoint, which would be to say that, you know, well, eventually the technology will simply, you know, eliminate capitalism because it will eliminate scarcity. I think, you know, everything that we know um, about how capitalism is able to evolve and to um, continually ward off its um, own destruction uh, tells us that. I think even post-scarcity technology wouldn't would probably not be enough. It's yeah, it's technology, but it is also politics, and it's thinking about how um, politics can of the left can think about technological changes which are coming and anticipate them. And I think it's it's been the left has been quite poor over the last twenty or so years in terms of actually being able to anticipate what's coming and prepare for it. So a lot of the way that you can see, um, you know, gigantic technology platforms dominating, you know, a lot of our kind of social infrastructure today. It's, it's uh, partly a, t- uh, a testament to the fact that the left simply was not active enough and politicized enough um, in organizing around these new kinds of ways of organizing society. And I think, um, you know, in order to have a kind of more powerful left, we need to be, be able to kind of make the most of those opportunities. I've been struck by people who, uh, for example, are very critical of Uber and just instead would like to go back to the old mode of doing taxis rather than thinking about how that kind of technology could be used in a more cooperative way. I mean, it could really transform the nature of ownership and the organization of the labor, uh, yet uh, the most common reflex seems to be just to want to go back to the old way of, of hailing a taxi. You know, the sort of optimistic approach to technology is just Marxism 101. Uh, I mean, Marx saw capitalism as developing the productive forces of society in such a way that it would then enable communism to emerge. Uh, And he has, you know, this point in the German ideology where he's talking about the fact that if we don't have the sort of technology available to end scarcity and to reduce the necessity of want, then we're just going to end up into a chaotic, conflictual situation. Uh, So technology is absolutely essential if we want to think about socialism or communism or post-capitalism or anything uh, better than this world. 
We've been talking most about paid work, but then there's also a whole bunch of unpaid work uh, that sort of, when they call it caring labor or social reproduction labor, uh, that's done disproportionately by women. How does that fit in uh, to your uh, vision of a post-work world? Uh, so I'm writing a book uh, on this actually right now with Helen Hester, and it's sort of oddly something which doesn't really get discussed. So you sort of have a group of post-work people who talk about wage labor a lot, uh, typically masculinized labor. And then you have feminists who critique those post-work people for not talking about unpaid labor. But neither of them sort of try and think about, well, how could we actually apply post-work principles to care labor and social reproduction uh, more broadly? So that's sort of the question that Helen and I are trying to answer in this book is what would you know, a post-work social reproduction look like? Broadly, there's, there's three sorts of things that we're looking at. One is simply um, rethinking living arrangements. So this is social relations, traditional idea about collectivizing family structure and things like that, uh, moving beyond sort of biological relations and thinking more about kinship, uh, but also the sort of architecture of the household as well, which is quite interesting. So there's a whole group of feminists in the early 1900s who had these sort of utopian ideas about how you could redesign uh, the space of the household in such a way that it would minimize work, uh, which is quite interesting. We also have an idea about a sort of finer distinction about what automation applies to or not. So oftentimes automation is seen as a, uh, it applies to productive labor, but not to reproductive labor. And that sort of blunt distinction is just seen as like, well, we can't automate any reproductive labor. I think that actually misses out on what's happening already. So when you throw a kid in front of an iPad and go and cook food for them, that's a form of automation right there. You're sort of delegating to a machine the work of taking care of that child. Perhaps not the soundest parenting behavior, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but we can sort of think about the mundane labors of domestic work as well, and how can we sort of uh, try and automate them as much as possible as well, uh, whether it be cooking or cleaning. Um, you know, I get pleasure out of cooking, but plenty of times I'm in too much of a rush to do that. So how can we sort of minimize some of the work involved in this stuff. Uh, and then finally, sort of thinking about the standards that society subjects us to uh, in terms of maintenance of the household. So there's an interesting historical fact that when domestic technologies get introduced in terms of dishwasher, laundry and dryer, all these sorts of things, basically what happens is they don't reduce the amount of work. Instead, they just raise the standards for what's expected. Uh, in terms of keeping a very clean house and very clean clothes and all these sorts of things. So, yeah, there's been a use of technology to actually ratchet up uh, the amount of work that people have to do. Uh, and so we have to sort of be careful about that as well. An old college friend of mine was the brand manager for whisk detergent for a while. She told me that the formula in the Philippines is radically different than it is in the United States because in the U.S., our clothes aren't really that dirty uh, when we wash them, whereas in the Philippines, they really are dirty. So you actually need a different form of detergent because the standards in the U.S. of what's supposed to be clean uh, are radically different from what they are in other parts of the world. Well, how do we get there from here? Uh, what's your idea of, of organization, uh, institutions that will lead the way there, and you know, the process of, of propagandizing uh, your, your vision of a different world? I, you know, it's hard to imagine uh, conventional political parties, as we know them now, adopting this kind of agenda, but it's also very difficult to imagine you know, trade unions also uh, embracing a post-work world. So how do you see uh, the mode of, of transformation? How do we get there? It's a very good question. I mean, it's the, always the million dollar question about any kind of uh, political project. How do we actually do it? So, I mean, we, we make various suggestions um, in Inventing the Future trying to answer this. I mean, I think I think you're absolutely right that certainly organizations like labor unions have historically been extremely wary of this kind of thing. Although, actually, if you look far enough back into the past, for example, in the early 20th century, they were actually, if not interested in post-work, then certainly in reducing the amount of work which people had to do and, you know, in gaining us the weekend, gaining us, you know, a certain number of hour work week. But I think in terms of political parties, there is potentially the room there. But I think one of the biggest, I mean, one of the biggest problems, this is something which, which I think both Nick and I have found trying to spread our ideas since writing the book, is simply the fact that, um, you know, the, the political culture as it exists in the UK, but also in America, even when you have a kind of leftward shift, potentially within one of the major parties, is kind of intellectually emaciated. You know, it doesn't. It, they're genuinely not used to thinking 
big about these kind of questions. And so often what you end up with is, you know, you saw this with Sanders, you saw this also with Corbyn, unfortunately, to some extent, which is a kind of, you know, a, a falling back upon 1970s, 60s Keynesianism, um, you know, social, the idea that you could return to a kind of post-war, almost Nordic socialism, even though the global economy maybe makes that rather difficult. And maybe also we could do something better. So one of the things which I think you're going to need is institutions that are operating on a time horizon, which enables them to do long term thinking. So this is something which we we talk about in the book, especially by reference to um, the neoliberals Mont Pelerin Society, which, you know, I mean, a lot of people have written about this of late. But I think what's underestimated is the fact that you know, this organization, this kind of a think tank at the center of this web of um, neoliberal institutions that they, they kind of produced over time. And one of the most important things was simply the fact that it was a, a, you know, a location where uh, right-wing intellectuals could get together and, and actually have quite bitter arguments about exactly what they wanted. Um, and developing that kind of space, an analogue to this, um, I think is going to be very um, important, going from you know very broad-scale arguments about precisely what we want towards producing kind of coherent ideology and also, you know, um, even to the extent of having things like pre-written uh, legislation that you can simply uh, write in, you know, the name of the country or the name of the region into. And this historically, this kind of this kind of role, um, I think at least partially the left has thought that maybe academia plays this role. But I think that academia, for various uh, reasons, perhaps is not very well adapted um, to playing this. So I think trying to generate this kind of institutional space is quite important. I think also, as, as Nick mentioned earlier, that um, it's important to think about, you know, to think ecologically about this stuff. So it's not necessarily about having any individual master organizational form that's going to be, um, you know, a, a kind of perfect tool to deliver things. But to think about how different kinds of organizations with certain role specializations uh, could be good at doing certain things. So I think you need to look across if you're, if you're thinking about broad scaled hegemonic change, you need to think across the whole kind of um, vista of organizations. So you probably need, you know, a number of viable active social movements. You probably need, you know, this to be on the agenda of, you know, some established political parties. Um, you need to have, um, I suspect, and especially in the UK, which probably has one of the worst media cultures in the world at this point, you, you definitely need some kind of media reform and, um, you know, uh, viable uh, uh, alternative media players operating at a mass scale. Um, you need unions to be on board or you need new kinds of um, sort of union-like organisations to be on board. And I think you need to have all of this operating together to begin to generate this kind of change. That was the voice of Alex Williams. I'm speaking with him and Nick Cernak, co-authors of Inventing the Future, Post-Capitalism in a World Without Work from Verso. The Mont Pelerin boys had a really, frankly, hierarchical view of how this was going to be done. You know, they had the, the big dome guys in Switzerland uh, talking about the big picture, and then it filters out through think tanks and useful pundits and that sort of thing, and then more broadly into a popular movement. Uh, and it was, it was really an intellectual trickle-down theory uh, from, from the first. People on the left would be mostly uncomfortable with that kind of hierarchical arrangement. Can that be done in a more egalitarian way, or should we overcome our fear of, uh, of hierarchy? I mean, I think we shouldn't be totally afraid of hierarchy. I mean, I think the, the, the question is always the legitimacy of any given hierarchy. But I do think that it, it, it's important to note that it would probably, you know, there's reasons why um, the neoliberals use the organizational forms that they did. It's also the case that obviously, because whilst they were radicals, even within the right of that time, they were at least on the right. They were at least proposing solutions which were going to restore profitability, um, increase the amount of, you know, the take of the surplus that corporations would get. Um, so they were able to find funders for this relatively easily. So there are some asymmetries, which I think you which I think you have to consider here. So, I mean, ideally, this would take some, uh, you know, a, a more egalitarian form. But I think. What's more important is to think about, you know, the fact that not all organizations need to be, um, for example, totally open. So one of the, the, the kind of one of the problems that the left has had is the fact that it tends to have all of its arguments in public. Um, and especially in a kind of era of social media, this just results in um, a lot of leftist organizations and individuals falling out with each other in a way which the Mont Pelerin Society, at least to some extent, was able to conduct these you know, bitter internecine uh, disputes partly in private. And this was helpful in terms of enabling this, this, this new kind of way of thinking to cohere. On the think tank issue, because I think there's a good example in Barcelona, the municipal government mm. 
uh, where they've got, you know, sort of almost participatory think tank. Uh, it's not just a series of academic intellectuals from the ivory tower coming in, developing these plans and implementing them. Instead, it's responding to the real concerns of everyday people and having them come in uh, and think about solutions to their own problems. So I think that's a sort of interesting example where you can start to imagine policy formation and demand formation in ways that aren't just, you know, coming from intellectuals. But a lot of regular people um, lack the interest or the time to get deeply involved in political struggles. Um, is there some, you know, set and forget, set and forget appeal that you could have for a, for a post-work world? Some ideas of a, of a utopian reorganization of the economy require lots and lots of meetings, which a lot of people are not terribly interested in. Um, is there any way that you can see of, of getting around that problem? Yeah. So, the, the, I mean, the, the traditional problem is the fact that when people start thinking about things like, I don't know, participatory politics or participatory economics, the idea, I mean, some of the people that initially propose these ideas view it very much, you know, in its mo- what I would identify as the most extreme form, which is where you will be in a meeting all the time. Uh, and there's a reason why most people don't care that much about politics and certainly don't commit that much time to politics. It's because they've got busy lives where they're often you know having to work very hard just to survive and therefore um it might be difficult for just practical reasons as much as anything else to kind of participate in it however there are kind of systems that people have kind of come up with recently um things that are kind of described as being liquid democracy and these basically are a system which let you participate to the extent that you want to participate so they are you know they can you can run it as a completely participatory system or if you if you like you can delegate your opinion to somebody who you trust so it's a kind of a system that can be as representative or as immediate um, as you like and I think something like that would probably be uh, the most viable way of running something like that in the US we've heard a lot about uh, interest among younger people those under 35 in particular, in, in socialism. Not quite clear what they mean by that idea, but um, there is certainly an interest in the word, at least, or the concept in some floating way. Do you find that in Britain? And do you find that this development is, is, is kind of encouraging for uh, the, the agenda that you're, you're promulgating? I think the UK has a much longer tradition of sort of being um, fond of socialism, whether it be sort of working class institutions or uh, the Labour Party to some degree. Uh, socialism, socialism has always had a sort of a, a voice uh, in UK politics, at least to a much greater extent than the US. I, th- I think though there was an interesting study recently where they were looking at the attitudes of young people uh, in the UK, and what they found was actually a, a much more uh, conservative set of attitudes than you might expect. More inclined towards authoritarianism, more inclined towards hating on immigrants and hating on people on benefits. Uh, And partly I think this is, you know, Thatcher's legacy, essentially. This is is hegemony uh, uh, at work that's changed people's mindsets in such a way. Uh, I don't know whether the left is really being reinvigorated as much as we might want in the UK, though. I think it's still the case, though, that if you if you kind of polled some key kind of socialist proposals, that there's still there's still a widespread support. I mean, the other kind of corollary to what Nick's saying is that. Throughout the era of neoliberalism, social attitude surveys demonstrated that most people did not support any of its hallmark policies. Uh, so I think I think there is still the kind of the you know some of the basis from which to kind of prosecute socialism. I think it's very interesting looking at the the movements in the U.S. over the last kind of decade, where I think now the statistic is more people under thirty five support socialism than capitalism. Yeah, I mean this is it'd be very interesting to think about exactly how how and why that's come about you know at this particular time in this particular place um i do think we need to clarify what the socialism actually mean i mean i think for a lot of um young americans it means good things but not necessarily amazingly radical things for the rest of the world so things like universal health care for example i do think that kind of the the that there has been a kind of resurgence in uh socialist parties throughout much of the west so you can see this in europe you can see this in the uk you can see this in america with the Sanders campaign um, and also with a slight uptick in the membership of Democratic Socialists of America, I think there needs to be a lot more work on what this means. What exactly what is this socialism? Is it just a kind of retro 30 glorious years post-war socialism, in which case, how is that going to work given the changes in the economy? Or if it's something new, and I think we would prefer it if it was something new that really spoke to the kind of um, conditions of today, 
how is that going to work? What's that going to look like? I think there's a lot more work to be done fleshing that out. Well, I think it's worth not presupposing exactly what, where they stand as well. I think that mm. actually it's, it's sort of a collective information. And that's really one of the political tasks is to establish what socialism means and sort of direct people towards it. Yeah, you know, Thatcher famously said that uh, the economics was the means, but was the point the point was to change people's souls. Uh, she certainly was successful in that in a lot of ways. But uh, that effort now seems to have run out of steam. And it seems like there are a whole lot of souls up for grabs right now. I, well, so I think in the UK, it's a bit more complex because you have not only a sort of polarization between the left and the right, but you also have the Brexit question, which is really dividing people. And actually, I think giving some life to what is effectively a dead liberalism, uh, mm. but the sort of pro-EU, uh, pro-Remain voice is dominated by the centrist liberals who are managing to co-opt a lot of people from the left and the right back into that centrist project in a way that... If we didn't have Brexit, like it just wouldn't be an issue. I think we'd have a, a much more clear delineation between the left and the right. Yeah, well, we've got that with Trump, and uh, whereas you know Hillaryism seems more attractive uh, now than it did a year ago. But you know, there does seem to be this. You know, it's, it's like that neoliberal order has ceased to be functional. Growth is very weak. None of the dynamism that we saw in the first couple of decades of the neoliberal era—that's all gone now. So there's this kind of weird um, ideological zombie effect where um, you know, people, um, the, the neoliberal ideology seems still to be dominant, but it's not really working and it doesn't really grab people the way it perhaps once did. Doesn't that offer some promise for, uh, for the future? I think it does, but I think we have to be, I mean, this is a debate that Nick and I have had many times, you know, exactly. Are we, where are we in the death of neoliberalism? I think we are somewhere within it, um, but I think because of the way it's become so absolutely embedded and particularly in the us and in the uk it's absolutely embedded you know at the infrastructural level that it doesn't you know it's the kind of thing which it doesn't really matter even if no one believes it in it, in it anymore it will still keep going for quite some time without a, a project to deliberately and methodically dismantle it um i think there are also people who still believe in it um I and mean, i think it has become the kind of common sense of how you manage and that this will persist for some time the kind of the right wing putative replacement for it, which is this almost sort of Putinist uh, ethno nationalism of the kind that's being, you know, to some extent aped by Trump, to some extent being aped by Theresa May in the UK. It's unclear what its ultimate relationship with neoliberalism is going to be. So, I mean, if you if you take all of it, all of what it says as as, as as you know at its word, then it would seem as if it would be um, making some significant breaks with it, particularly at the level of the involvement of the state directly in managing the economy, particularly in things like um, industrial policy. But it, that remains unclear. You, you know, I mean, I think the way that Trump has kind of um, stuffed his cabinet full, full of um, Goldman Sachs ghouls uh, sort of points towards some of the limits of this. I think potentially something like Brexit is simply going to lead to an accelerated, even nastier kind of neoliberalism, even if there isn't even any kind of attempt to uh, justify this at the level of discourse. Um, yeah, I mean, this is this is this is at the kind of the most depressing kind of uh, way of looking at it. But I do think there is a big opportunity here to um, put forward a bold new vision. The energy behind neoliberalism is, is completely, I think, ebbed now. I, I think there's also uh, the important point that actually, you know, neoliberalism is also a sort of regime of accumulation and nothing on offer poses any sort of suggestion about how you would get capitalist growth going again. Uh, Trump doesn't have an answer to that. Theresa May certainly doesn't have an answer to that. And so even if they are sort of aping the sort of routine gestures of, of neoliberalism, mixed in with some xenophobia and economic nationalism, it's not going to solve the fundamental problem that neoliberalism as a model of accumulation is now dead and over with. So... I think there's a big open space for something else to come in, and hopefully it comes from the left. It's time for fully automated luxury communism. <laughs> that was a concluding part of my interview with Nick Cernick and Alex Williams, co-authors of Inventing the Future, Post-Capitalism in a World Without Work from Verso. Every time I interview an advocate of a post-work world, they have a problem dealing with the challenge of production. Robots won't be able to do everything. We'll always need human labor. It's as if radical thinkers are so focused on ideology, on alienation, on distribution, on consumption, that they don't think much about how things are made, or how work can develop our humanity. Yes, many jobs are miserable, damaging, numbing, exploitative, but that's not all they are. 
There's that famous quote from Conrad's Heart of Darkness. I don't like work. No man does. But I like what is in the work. The chance to find yourself. Your own reality. For yourself, not for others. What no other man can ever know. Though this captures something important, it is still an individualized understanding of work and not a social one. We're social beings, and our efforts to labor together to make things are part of that sociality. I'm not sure that the post-work party really addresses all this in either its practical or idealistic aspects, but I'm still entertaining options. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some more commentary from the Gang of Four, and another quote from Joseph Conrad. Till next week, bye. Between us.